Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Wednesday, June 9th. John, what do you want to talk about today? Well, first, I want to get your thoughts on the bond sell-off in two of China's most prolific debt issuers and the growing fear that that may give rise to contagion, as they call it. I also want to talk about an essay by George Packer in The Atlantic, where he makes the case that America has four competing national narratives. He calls them free America, smart America, real America, and just America. How about you? I've got my eye on a couple of tech stories today. One is Facebook's Bulletin, a Substack clone that they plan to launch later this month. The other is a first-of-its-kind lawsuit filed by the state of Ohio against Google. They want a judge to classify the company as, get ready for this, a utility. Lots to talk about. All right. Before we get to the news items, let's get to a couple of science and tech headlines, both of which actually are really interesting. First, there's an important new partnership in the field of quantum computing. Cambridge Quantum and a segment of Honeywell are merging to form a new business, which aims to combine their respective strengths in software and hardware. They even want to make the world's first quantum operating system. Conventional computers make calculations in ones and zeros, but quantum computing is based on the truly strange properties of quantum physics. In the place of a one or a zero, a quantum computer can apply both values at the same time. That could make computers millions of times faster than today, which could in turn revolutionize our understanding of complex molecules and artificial intelligence, to name just a couple of applications. John, I know this field is up there for you in terms of technology that could radically change what humans are capable of. Tell me about this sweetheart deal, the first of the quantum computing age. One thing I think people don't are probably not aware of is that Honeywell is one of the leaders Mm -hmm. in quantum computing, and this tie-up with Cambridge Quantum gives them, you know, greater heft to compete with Google, essentially. You know, the race is on to get this done. Obviously, the Chinese are working night and day on it, and it, it has enormous promise. And, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but cyber warfare would be made fantastically more difficult if quantum computing was around because in theory and apparently in practice, quantum computing is unhackable. So Don't say that. Don't <laughs> so, uh, but but yeah. <laughs> but that's you know, that is uh, completely secure communications is the promise, one promise of yeah. quantum computing and uh Given where we're going with cyber warfare, it can't happen fast enough. Absolutely. So keep an eye on Honeywell. Bye, bye, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Next, scientists have devised a way to gauge the effectiveness of a given cancer treatment within a quick 24-hour window. The test looks at tiny particles released by cells known as extracellular vesicles. In the case of cancer cells, these vesicles will contain trace amounts of the drug itself, at least if that drug was successful in hitting its target. And that's the whole point. Some treatments miss the mark, and treatment is bound to be more effective if this can be determined as quickly as possible. Conventional procedures can take weeks. Incredibly, the new process, created in part by the National University of Singapore, works by amplifying and measuring light signals given off by the blood sample. According to Science Alert, the technology could be in use in about three years. What do you say, John? This is a big breakthrough. 
is just astonishing. Yeah. It's great news. Yeah. Highlighting it and bringing it to everybody's attention is important because it's going to be with us if they're right at the University of Singapore, and I'm sure there probably are. This is going to be a technology available to all in three or four or five years. Any day without cancer is a good day for the world. Indeed. I mean. Indeed. All right. Let's move on to the news items. All right. Let's start with this. Bloomberg reported today, and I'm going to quote the article, a bond sell-off in two of China's most prolific debt issuers is widening concern over contagion risks in the country's $862 billion bond market. Bonds of China Evergrande Group, Asia's largest seller of junk-rated dollar debt, have slumped in recent weeks amid a barrage of negative news. That's added to the sense of unease created by China Huang Asset Management Company, one of the biggest issuers of investment-grade securities, as the company's failure to release financial results sparked speculation about a potential debt restructuring. While China's credit market is no stranger to bouts of volatility, the fresh wave is challenging long-held assumptions that the state would bail out investors in the country's biggest firms. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, that sounds a little spooky. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds a little spooky. I mean, with respect to Evergrande, I mean, they are a major, major, major real estate developer in China. And Beijing recognizes that real estate is too big to fail in China, and they are trying to execute a forced deleveraging of real estate developers in the country, and Evergrande is part of that. Knowing Beijing as you do, it will come as no surprise that they want to control house prices. They want to manage land prices. They want the sector to be less cyclically wobbly. So the Chinese government has issued these official metrics for leverage in the real estate development market, which are called the three red lines. And Evergrande has been in violation of the three red lines since last year, which means there are strict limits on their borrowing. So what we are seeing here is the sort of pain of Evergrande trying to deleverage and reboot its credit exposures. That's what's happening. At present, I don't think this is a case of the, the of a Lehman moment or, or something like that. This is not going to be like, oh, let's you know embrace the free market all of a sudden. You know, and uh, candidly, I don't think they're going to let Warong go under either. I don't think. I mean, I don't have they a can't, right? No, no. Look, I think there's going to be a sort of mass revisiting of what is a semi-sovereign security in China like that. You know, because right. Warong, yeah, because these bonds have been viewed as sort of de facto sovereigns, right? Right. It's interesting to watch, you know, as the uh, risk profile of some of these dollar-denominated bonds is, shall we say, re reconceptualized. Reconceptualized. I like that. Yes. Repricing of dollar-denominated bond, uh, dollar bond risk. We also have the great savior, which is the bad bank, right? So you can, oh, that's you right. Can put, that's right. You can put them into the bad bank. And then, yeah. You know. Nothing ring fencing can't solve, right? Because that's what we need. We need a bad bank. Yeah. We need several bad banks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's move on to the next news item. John, in today's news items newsletter, you included a link to an essay in The Atlantic by George Packard that's adapted from his upcoming book, Last Best Hope. He argues that America used to have two competing national narratives, individual enterprise versus social solidarity. But after the 60s, those perspectives were replaced with four competing national narratives. Packard calls them free America, smart America, real America, and just America. They are the domains of, respectively, elite traditionalists allied with libertarians, cosmopolitans, the white working class, and the young, woke generation. All right, John, I know you. 
<laughs> at least well enough to know you disagree with Packer's analysis here, but you did include it in news items. So tell us why and tell us what you think he gets wrong and right. I just think it's hard to say they're four American narratives. Right. I mean, right away you see there's black America, which doesn't fit into any of these four categories. Yeah. So it's tough, but it's interesting. Yeah. I think the big thing in American politics today is what Walter Mead calls Jacksonian America, which is a significant portion of the country. It was the backbone of Donald Trump's two presidential campaigns. Yeah. Somewhere between 33 and 38 percent of the nation it's a hugely important constituency, obviously based in the South, the Midwest, and parts of the West. It's nationalist, populist. It's Andrew Jackson basically updated. And in order for the country to be stitched back together again, it seems to me that group, Jacksonian America, has to be included or the country can't be patched back together again. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jacksonian America is also like a wild overstatement, but it does capture the core of Trump's constituency, I think. Um, The second big piece, and George, I think, correctly makes this is smart America. Mm -hmm. You know, other people calls it double D America, meaning uh, density and degrees. And that group has achieved unimaginable wealth at some level. And if they view the rest of the country as basically flyover country, then the divisions, the polarization can only get worse. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we're going to get into a few more news items all about big tech. Welcome back to News Items. The state of Ohio wants Google to be classified as a public utility. In a lawsuit against the company, the state alleges that Google discriminates against its competitors in its search results. State Attorney General Dave Yost is quoted in The Wall Street Journal as saying, When you own the railroad or the electric company or the cell phone tower, you have to treat everyone the same and give everybody access. The same article then quotes a law professor and antitrust expert who comments, It strikes me as a very 19th century lawsuit to bring. Rebecca, this is one of many antitrust lawsuits around the world filed against Google and its parent company, obviously, Alphabet. Yes. But Ohio says it's the first state to specifically attempt to have Google declared a common carrier. That is right. Can you break down what that means? I'm not sure I understand what their argument is. Okay. Well, a common carrier is typically used in the transportation, telecommunications, and utility space. It is a legal definition which defines an entity that provides goods and services to the paying public and cannot discriminate against public actors for any other reason. So it's a it's a, a legal threshold for defining a utility. And just by way of source citation, I think Ars Technica wrote had an excellent breakdown of the story yesterday. I encourage listeners to check it out. But A.G. Yost's move follows a ruling by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who issued a ruling last month that pointed to Twitter and similar companies as possible common carriers in the media space. So that is the sort of legal basis for treating Google as such. You said that there was an antitrust expert who said, this strikes me as a very 19th century lawsuit to bring. What did he, what did he mean by that? 
Well, I think what he's talking about is trust busting. You can bring railroad busting legislation to bear on something like Google. You know, utilities have very high barriers to entry. I mean, they operate using long-term contracts. You know, they can function as de facto monopolies, and so they are subject to special regulation. I think it's an attempt to bring current legal standards into alignment with the reality of the technology we live with, right? Right. Google's algorithm has the power to point you in this direction and not that one. What are the business dynamics that take place along that road? It'll be interesting to see how it comes out. I will say that. I mean, the reason I find this interesting is that intuitively it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I buy that Google's a utility. Of course it is. It's become a basic fabric of daily life for much, most people. It's become a, a necessity. I mean, it has, it has so much control over the way our lives are conducted. Of course, it's a utility. There's that. And there's the fact that the, uh, that the legal basis for doing so came as a result of a ruling by Justice Thomas in April hmm. in a case questioning Donald Trump's Twitter account and whether that constitutes a public forum or not. So I think the tech companies, they're crying out for regulation. <laughs> I think they are. But nobody really knows quite how to go about it. Google will say, look, we're free, okay? If you don't like us, go somewhere else. And that's not realistic. You know, it's a verb now, Google it. But they're right. I mean, mm -hmm. you can go elsewhere. And DuckDuckGo is a very good search engine. Bing is a very good search engine. I mean, no one's making us all go to Google. So I suspect that's going to be their argument. No one's making you go to Google, number one. And number two, it's free. So get over it. So in Justice Thomas's ruling from earlier this spring, here's a quote. Some scholars have argued that common carrier regulations are justified only when a carrier possesses substantial market power. So substantial market power can be enough to justify common carrier regulation. And so do you think, I mean, Google, I mean, do you think they fit the bill, <laughs> you know, given that their, you know, that their algorithm can, you know, navigate you to certain results and not others? It's one to follow because it will domino um, if it goes mm -hmm. a certain way and, it, and it'll stop the dominoes if it goes Google's way. So it's big time, I think. And it's right in the heart of the America. It's right in Ohio. You know, if it plays in Ohio, it'll play across the country, essentially. Sounds like a utility to me, but who am I? Who am I to say? <laughs> okay, enough about Google. Let's talk about Facebook. It looks like Facebook is set to launch a newsletter subscription service called Bulletin later this month. It's designed to compete with Substack and Twitter's newsletter service, Review. Unlike Substack, which made a name for itself by attracting high-profile, but in some cases controversial, political journalists, Facebook says it's staying away from politics, for now at least. Only writers selected by Facebook will have newsletters on Bulletin, and they're apparently recruiting writers who cover comparatively less divisive topics like sports, entertainment, the environment, and local news. John, as our listeners already know, your newsletter, News Items, lives on Substack, so I'm curious to get your take on this strategy, which I like to call the next installment of selling pickaxes at the gold rush. <laughs> Give me your take, John. <laughs> Substack, for people like me, was a place where mm -hmm. you could essentially create your own publishing outfit, right? So I have news items and we have bird news items. Yeah. And we put those out and news items six days a week, bird news items on the weekends. Substack handles essentially all the back end and they take a 10% cut stripe. The payment collector takes another point or two. So you get to keep roughly 90% of the revenue that you generate from subscriptions. Yeah. It's been wildly popular with 
writers like Andrew Sullivan, who have a following already. I think Sullivan is already generating revenues of more than a million dollars. So it's a sort of an alternate form of getting yourself heard out there in the great media landscape. Mm -hmm. Facebook coming into this is potentially a game changer because if we just take our little thing of bird news items, Mm -hmm. we can partner essentially with Facebook. We'd obviously have to pay. Mm -hmm. But Facebook can connect us through its network of whatever it is, 1.8 billion daily average users. They can connect us to the people who are interested in birding, bird watching, you know, bird books, all that stuff. And as it happens, Facebook is going to take less of a cut than Substack Mm -hmm. does. So it's a huge thing because it's just a massive audience. And Facebook can slice and dice it so that you're reaching exactly the people that you want to reach. It's odd. I mean, I think it's an interesting plan. It's invite only, no politics, which I can't, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, doesn't that sort of defeat the whole purpose of uh, Facebook's recommendation engine? I mean, they want those very emotional, highly engaging topic areas that keep people addicted to the platform. I mean, they want addictive content. They do, but, you know, they also build businesses for people. Mm -hmm. I have a friend named Lisa Heffernan who has, in partnership with Facebook, has essentially a Facebook-based newsletter site called Grown and Flown, directed at parents whose kids are either getting ready to go to college or in college or have graduated from college and are going on to, you know, whatever they're going on to. They now have an audience of 75,000 people who actively talk to one another in Facebook groups, who share individual problems, whether it's, you know, drug addiction or some learning disability or whatever. Yeah. It's an incredibly active group, and it's all enabled by Facebook. So, you know, it's sad that you have to, you know, Facebook lives and dies on extreme political opinion and so on and so forth. It's complete nonsense. It doesn't, you know, it benefits from that because supposedly you have people who pay more and more attention to it, devote more and more time to it. But the strength of Facebook is building small businesses like Lisa's. Mm -hmm. You know, Facebook gets a bad rap, and deservedly so. Yes. You know, it's the corporate surveillance state, basically. Yeah. But if you have a small business and you partner with Facebook, your small business is going to be bigger. There's just no two ways around that. I mean, I'll be interested to see how their algorithms develop around identifying content that is compelling but not divisive or political. Because, side note, Investable Universe gets into trouble with Facebook all the time. As well you should. No, indeed not. (laughs) You know, for interestingly enough, for a trade publication that has absolutely zero political coverage, Investable Universe gets flagged by the advertising algorithm all the time for quote-unquote politically and socially divisive content because we cover areas like renewable energy, 5G, and infrastructure. I can't believe it. For a platform that has such problems with, you know, politically violent speech and hate groups and militia recruitment and child pornography and incredible social ills, like, I can't believe this is the kind of stuff that they block. The block investable universe. So, you know, good luck with the newsletter business. (laughs) (laughs) You know. Facebook is, as you 
uh, no doubt noticed mm -hmm. playing major defense in the political arena. Yeah. You know, they're spooked by the fact that Trump and others on the Republican side hate them. They're spooked by the fact that Democrats think that they should be broken up. You know, so they're completely gun-shy coming to the newsletter biz. And so what they're saying is, we'll invite you to be on our platform if you only talk about flowers or something. Didn't knitting become like an alt-right thing through Facebook groups? It's like you think these areas that are not politicized at all <laughs> then become these sort of, I don't know, tribal affiliation groups that very yeah. quickly become politicized. I think they'll have a hard time keeping the politics out. Yeah, there's some story recently yeah. about a bakery that said, you know, mm -hmm. if you came into the bakery wearing a mask, you know, we wouldn't serve you or some lunatic thing like that. So all of the bakery became political. People who didn't want to wear masks went to the bakery. And the, I mean, yeah. it's just, uh, it's so crazy. But, you know, there are two things that are going to work against it, obviously. One it's not big enough for Facebook to pay attention to, you know, as newsletters. I mean, it's minor revenue to them. So there's that. And then there's how public do they want to be? And if they decide to go political, does that create more problems, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this seems to me like a test. And if it works, that's fine. And if it doesn't, they'll throw it away in a heartbeat. Yeah. One other thing, the app Clubhouse, which mm -hmm. is, you know, all the rage maybe for the last six months. I'm not so sure that it is today. You know, Facebook, of course, is yeah. coming up with its version of Clubhouse. And again, I think, you know, it's a test. And if it takes off, that's great. And if it doesn't, yeah. you know, they'll ditch it in a heartbeat. So Area to watch. Indeed. For a deeper dive on the subjects we discussed today, I encourage all of our listeners to go to news items, to go to Substack. He's not on Bulletin yet. <laughs> go to Substack. Check out John Ellis's News Items newsletter at newsitems.substack.com and go for the premium subscription. And for information about the global market of things, you have to visit Rebecca's site, investableuniverse.com. All right, so that's it from us today. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with John's interview with Stephen Smith. See you then.